Over the past few years, as I have continued to observe American culture and to a great extent our Christian culture, what I see disturbs me greatly. What I see too often are Christians, not unlike Israel of old, who are increasingly preoccupied with themselves, with their possessions, and with their careers. Hosea put it like this in reference to Israel. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. The New Testament writers also have some very interesting views concerning idolatry. They expanded the Old Testament meaning greatly. To them, idolatry is what or who we place at the top of our pyramid of values. It is ultimately what or who we serve, which in turn guides our actions. And the warning, young people, in the Word of God is very clear. That when the society around us turns to idols, it is headed for destruction. You can count on it. Idolatry is nothing more than the corruption of true worship. Let me say that again. Idolatry is nothing more than the corruption of true worship. Now, how do we get caught up in this whole contest of having to deal with idolatry every day in our lives? I believe the reason for that is, is that we are continually, as Dr. MacArthur said on Wednesday, battling with our mortality or our flesh, which is in a continual process of corruption. Many of you are young right now, and many of you do not understand what I'm saying. But if you talk to an older person, if you talk to a physically disabled person, they will understand exactly what I'm telling you right now. We are mortals, and we are continually, therefore, dealing with this process of corruption. Open your Bibles briefly to a passage Dr. MacArthur referred to on Wednesday, Romans 7, verse 18. Paul puts it like this. Romans 7, verse 18. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Go over to Romans 8, verse 21, the following chapter. And we see the same theme being continued. Let me begin in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay or corruption and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now this is the point of the Apostle Paul in both of those passages. All of creation, which includes us, is in a state of corruption which leads to death because of sin. Our bodies 
Our minds are all part of this process. Don't forget that. Our bodies and our minds are all part of this corrupting process. Physically, I see it every day. I see it in athletics, when a key athlete goes down with a serious injury and cannot play in a crucial game. I also see it in my own physical debility as I get older. I used to enjoy athletics. Believe it or not, I used to be quite coordinated. But as I now approach that half-century mark, about all I can do anymore is run in a straight line. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. When I go to do a chore around the house, I used to be able to take a screwdriver and find the head of that screw and do that without my glasses. Now I can't even find the screw. What is that telling me? It's telling me that I am in this corrupting process physically. I see it in my waistline. Okay? You know, the older you get, the more gravity has this tendency, no matter how hard you work, to pull everything down this way. Your body is corrupting. I don't have to tell you about your mind. It's a constant battle to think good thoughts. You know, I always get the idea around this campus that everything is going pretty good when I don't hear anything negative. Because the assumption that most of us make is that everything will be good and we only respond to the negative. And so therefore, most of the time, the thoughts that we think tend to have with them negative or carnal backgrounds. We're in a constant battle then in this particular area. Now, young people, listen to me. This is no different than all of history. And I want to illustrate this to you to show you how important this whole issue of mortality and corruption is to us as Christians as we fight this tremendous battle of dealing with the flesh. Turn back in your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 1. And I want to illustrate this whole corrupting process as it took place in both the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel. Look in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4. Isaiah here is talking to the nation of Judah, who by the way at this time was enjoying, not unlike the United States of America, great prosperity. This was not a downtime economically in the kingdom of Judah. Look at verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers. Now watch this next phrase. Children given to corruption. There's that word again. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. What Isaiah is saying here is that, the, is that the children of Judah had corrupted their worship. Go over to chapter 5, verse 8, and let me illustrate this through the woes that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah chapter 5. Now watch this. Look at verse 8. Woe to you, or damn you, if you want it in the Hebrew. Woe to you who add house to house. Does that sound familiar? And join field to field till no space is left 
and you live alone in the land. The idolatry of possessions. The idolatry of self-indulgence. Go to verse 20. Go to verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. There the idolatry has to do with lying. Look at verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. There it has to do with pride. Look at verse 23. Who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. They do not do justice in their corruption. Now, if that's not enough as it relates to the kingdom of Judah, try to find in your Bibles the book of Amos. Okay, the book of Amos. And I want to illustrate the same point from the nation of Israel. Okay, the northern kingdom. Go to Amos, if you will, chapter 3. Amos chapter 3. And here we see before us, once again, the corruption of the nation of Israel. The corruption of the nation of Israel. Now, Israel's specific sin was that of exploitation of the poor. We don't really hear a whole lot of sermons about that in churches today in America, in evangelical churches. But if you read the Old Testament... One of the greatest sins of the nation of Israel was that they did not do justice to the poor and to the oppressed of their nation. In fact, they took advantage of them. Look at chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Chapters 3, verses 9 and 10 of Amos. Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, See the great unrest within her, and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who hoard plunder and loot into their fortresses. They were ripping off the poor people of the nation. They were careless with the oppressed who lived in their midst. Now, once again, young people, listen to me so you get the context here. This was taking place at the height of the glory of the northern kingdom. It was a rich, rich nation at this time. Second, Second Kings tells us that the nation had experienced great expansion of territory. Look at Amos once again, chapter 3, verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 15. I will tear down the winter house. I'll tear down your condo and mammoth, along with the summer house at Balboa. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed, and the mansions will be demolished. You see, the members of the upper classes in the nation of Israel had houses made of ivory. They were lavishing their income on themselves. Look at chapter 6, verse 5. Chapter 6, verse 5. In fact, let's go to verse 4. You lie on beds of ivory and lounge on your couches. The men and women spent their days, once again, lounging in luxury. They spent their days, as it says in verse 5, look at verse 5, you strum away on your hearts. You've got your tape machines, you've got your video discs, 
You've got your compact disc, and that's what you spend your time doing. They spent their days listening to the music of their day. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. You drink wine by the bowlful, and you use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. They ate and they drank the most expensive foods and wines. It even says here in, in verse 6, they took beauty treatments. Okay? Now, one more passage to really illustrate this. Go to chapter 8. Go to chapter 8. Okay, look what it says in verse 4. Chapter 8, verse 4. Hear this, you who trample the needy. See, God cuts right through all this materialistic garbage. Okay, he gets right to the bottom line. Hear this, you who trample the needy, and do away with the poor of the land, saying... Now watch this. Get the context, people. When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended, that we may market wheat, skipping the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy with a pair of sandals? You see what's going on? These guys are all sitting in church. And what are they thinking about? Man, I can hardly wait for this to get over so I can get back out there and make the bucks. It is phony religiosity, young people. And what I'm telling you this morning is that is exactly what is permeating much of the church in America today. And if it's going to be changed, it's going to be changed by people like you that don't buy into much of the system that unfortunately we have bequeathed to you. Let me bring this a little closer home if I might. You know, our nation, we just celebrated in September the writing of the U.S. Constitution. And one of the most serious questions asked by our founding fathers was simply this, in all of the constitutional debates, how can a republic keep from becoming corrupted? That was the greatest issue that the founding fathers faced because they saw every single human government that had succeeded them fall into disrepair. And so the issue was, given the nature of man, how in the world can we keep this nation on track? And on the last day of the Constitutional Convention, on September 17, 1787, an old, a tired, and a sick Benjamin Franklin rose to ask all for a unanimous consent. And then he concluded his remarks with these words. Listen, young people, because they apply to us today. And there is no form of government but what may be a blessing to the people if well administered for a course of years. That is, it will last for a course of years. But ultimately, he goes on to say, and can only end in despotism as other forms of Now, Benjamin Franklin was not a born-again Christian, but he had enough of a grasp on history to understand the whole corrupting process and that it was only going to be a period of time when our nation would face exactly the same crisis that every other nation before us has faced. Now, according to the 18th century vocabulary, corruption is to be found in three areas. This is not biblical right now, but boy, it's sure close. Let me give you what the Founding Fathers thought. Corruption is to be found in three areas, okay? First of all, luxury. 
luxury. The pursuit of material things which divert us from concern. It's exactly the same thing in the church. Why don't things get done today? Why are there needs that are not being met in the church today? A lot of it has to do with the fact that Christians are more concerned with their material well-being than they are with the ministry of the Word of God and the success of building God's kingdom. Second, dependence. And boy, we see this in our country today. It's people accepting the dominance of whatever person or group that promises to take care of their material desires. Did you get that? You give your allegiance to any group that promises to take care of your material desires. And thirdly, ignorance. A lack of interest in public things. A concern only for the private. A willingness to be governed by those who promise to take care of us even without our knowledgeable consent. And this is rampant in the nation today and also in the church. A lack of interest in public things. We have privatized everything. And much of our Christian life has fallen into that category. And that's unfortunate. Now, what's my point in saying all this to you? My point is this. Listen, young people. Mortality is always manifested in the corrupting process. You're young. You don't understand that. But let me say this to you. If you are 21 years of age, your body is already into the corrupting process. More cells are dying in your body right now than are being reproduced. It started. The flesh is there. And you will have it continually with you. Let me say that again. Mortality is always manifested in the corrupting process. And this corrupting process is alive and well in the church in the lives of Christians, and in our own lives right now. And it takes the form of idolatry. You get that? It takes the form of idolatry. There are, not, there are a lot of practical areas I could turn to to illustrate this this morning, but I, I've chosen three. And I hope that they will really hit you where you are because they really hit me. And I want you to know that as I, as I am saying these words to you this morning... They're bouncing right back into my own life and into my own being. Because these are hard words. They're not, in a sense, positive words. They're not the kinds of words that stroke us. They're the kinds of words that call us to commitment and challenge our lives. Let me deal with three idols this morning, if I might. First of all, the idol of the self. The idol of the self. Today, many Christian preachers and writers are echoing the teachings, not of a biblical psychology, but of a humanistic psychology. They tell us that the fundamental human problem is low self-esteem. The fundamental human problem is low self-esteem. When in reality, the Bible makes it so clear that it is pride and self-righteousness which is the key problem. Do you hear that? It is not low self-esteem. It is pride and self-righteousness, which is the great problem. Now, let me illustrate it this way, leading back once again to this whole idea of corruption and mortality. Self-love, young people, listen to me. Self-love is part 
of your mortality. And it is assumed by the writers in the New Testament. In Ephesians 5, what does Paul say when he talks about the marriage relationship? He says men ought to love their wives as their own what? Bodies. The assumption is you will love yourself. Not that you need more of that. That's part of your mortality. What about when Christ says in Matthew, love your neighbor as your what? Yourself. You see, the assumption by the biblical writer is you will normally in your mortality and your corruption love yourself. That's not the issue. The issue is pride and self-righteousness. Let me give you some research data on this. I received a book just the other day put out by the Christian College Coalition, by, put out by a number of, of, of people that teach in the psychology and counseling departments of these Christian colleges. And they were talking about this subject. And this is what they said. People readily accept credit when told they have succeeded. Did you hear that? People readily accept credit when told they have succeeded but always or most of the time attribute failure to external factors. When you get an A on an exam, what do you do? Oh man, I did it. Studied hard, got all the work. You got a D on the exam. Ah, flaky teacher, what a bunch of silly questions. You get what I'm saying? That's the attitude. Okay? Same thing, you score a great goal in a soccer game. Who takes the credit, right? Next time you come down and you chip one over the net. Ah, what a lousy assist. Terrible pass. You get what I'm talking about? The tendency is not low self-esteem. The tendency is pride and self-righteousness. We see this all the time when we get, uh, it's really interesting, when we get self-evaluations from students that are applying to the, come to the college. I see this in the life of my own children. I see it in myself. The tendency usually, when you're, when you're asked to evaluate yourself, the tendency is to bias that in favor of yourself. You hear that? Otherwise, you ask a person to self-report their GPA. Well, I had about a 3.5. We pull out the permanent file, oh, 2.7. You see what I'm talking about? That kind of thing. And, and all the tests they run in this area bring this point home over and over again. Alan Bloom put it like this, folks when he talks about this whole issue of self-love. The issue is like squaring the circle. Now listen to this. Everyone loves himself most, but wants others to love him more than they love themselves. You get that? That's the problem. We all love ourselves and we expect everybody else to love us as much as we do. That's the real issue today in this, whole, in this whole area of the self. They also tell us in relation to this whole area of self-esteem that what Christians really need is to be more assertive. More assertive. You know, it goes like this. Well, I tried serving leadership and the people in my church walked all over me. You know, blessed are the meek. They always get out of the way before you have to push them. Some Christian authors even recommend learning the language of assertiveness, replacing bad thoughts with good thoughts, and facing others aggressively, being number one at the expense of everybody else. You ever think of this, folks? Just think about this. Do you realize that when you're number one, somebody has to be number two? And when you're number one, somebody has to be number two all the time? 
What does that mean? What are you saying to people? Second idol. The idol of wealth and power. The idol of wealth and power. Now, the reason I put these two together is because usually power flows from wealth in our culture. Okay? Secular power flows from wealth. Today, unfortunately, for, for the most part, success in the church is defined by the parameters of wealth and power. I hate to say that, but that's true. Rather than looking for the marks of the spirit in a person's life, we look at the size of the ministry, the buildings that have been built, the cars driven, the clothes worn as the measure of God's blessing and God's grace. Ken Gangle puts it like this. The proper... The prosperity gospel, the prosperity gospel is a transfer of the yuppie lifestyle to the church. Did you hear that? The prosperity gospel is a transfer of the yuppie lifestyle to the church. And all Ken is saying here is simply this. The church has bought into the materialistic spirit that Dr. MacArthur talked about on Wednesday of this age. I heard some great data on this just the other day. I was listening to Evans and Novak on Saturday, and uh, they're a conservative, kind of a conservative uh, uh, editorial writers. They write papers for national syndication, and they have this television program on CNN every week, and they interview, you know, uh, personalities and politicians and people like that. And on Saturday, they were interviewing H. Ross Perot. Any, anybody ever heard of H. Ross Perot? He's one of the, he's one of the most wealthiest men in America. And so they started asking him all these questions about this, about a lot of the problems America's having. And he was very insightful. Uh, first of all, they asked Perot what he would do about the terrible budget crisis that we're under in this country, running these huge deficits every year. And Evans said to him, well, don't you think the politicians ought to do something about this? And Perot's answer was unbelievable. You know what he said? He said, why do we expect the politicians to live within their budgets when we as a nation refuse to live within our budgets. What was he saying? He's saying that the real fault lies in the people of this nation. We're all living up to our eyeballs in debt. That's what he was saying. He then turned to the stock market and Evans asked him a ludicrous question. Was the stock market oversold when it crashed 500 points? I thought Perot had a great answer. He said, I'll tell you this, I'll tell you this, uh, Robert or Roland. He said this. When you are paying 28-year-olds $500,000 a year, do you think the market is oversold? That was his response, of course. You see, once again, young people, this is where the culture is today. I want to read you an extended quote right now from Patty Roberts in her book, Ashes to Gold, The Race That Endures, in relation to this whole thing of wealth and power. And I want you to listen very carefully. Okay? I want you to listen to this. As members of one of America's foremost Christian empires, we were allowed great personal excesses. None of us were having affairs or siphoning off funds from the ministry, but we wallowed in spiritual indifference and pride. To raise the enormous amount of money needed just to keep the day-to-day -day operation of the Evangelical Association and the university running smoothly, Oral had to develop contacts among leaders in government and the business community. It was a fact of life that he could tap more financial and political capital 
for the ministry during one golf game at the Southern Hills Country Club than he could in a week of partners' meetings. However, in order to be accepted by those who possess wealth and influence, one had to adopt at least some of the trappings of their lifestyle, and, the inevitability, and this inevitably creates conflicts. Jesus said we were to be servants, but it's hard to maintain a servant's heart when you dress better than some heads of state and live better than 99% of the world. When you play golf with senators and vacation with heads of multi-million dollar corporations, it is difficult to identify with a widow on Social Security who faithfully supports the ministry with her $10 offering each month. The weight of success tends to remove you from the reality of the Spirit of God, from the bleeding, wounded, compassionate heart of Jesus. We became so blinded to our own excesses that we saw nothing incongruous about singing before a partner's meeting to raise millions of dollars for a new building than toasting the success of our efforts with lavish night out on the town. The primary means of ministry created a paradox and a problem for us. While television enabled us to reach more people, it also allowed us to remain very remote. Public meetings and concerts bring you into direct contact with hurting, needing people. Television insulates you from them. You tape the shows, and by the time they're airing, you are in Palm Springs vacationing. Volunteer counselors man the phone hotlines and computers sort open and answer the mail. Television also confers tremendous power and wealth on its stars, whether they are religious or secular. And this is perhaps its greatest attraction as well as its greatest danger. Listen to this. Power corrupts. She is a seductive mistress, and many men who would never dream of being immoral or dishonest have fallen prey to her charms. Religious power is usually more subtle, but it is no less devastating. It is easy to elevate those who minister on television or, or in concerts or those books to a more spiritual plane than ordinary Christians to assume that they have none of the foibles and failures that the rest of us grapple with as human beings. We seem to have a perverse tendency to want to create idols. Whether they are golden calves or Christian superstars, idols are simple and certainly less threatening to deal with than the living God. It is easy for us to fall into embracing what Richard Foster calls the religion of the mediator. If we are not very, if we are not very careful, we can move quickly and totally unconsciously into worshiping God's servants instead of God. But no man or woman can stand the weight of worship. It is intoxicating and highly addictive. It perverts one's way of thinking and bends one's personality. The load is too much. You lose sight of who you are in God, and you're pressed to believe your own publicity. Which is exactly what happened to us. What an indictment. What, a, what, what words concerning a ministry. It's exactly what happens when power and wealth get in the way and corrupt. Listen, young people, remember this. It's a simple little verse, but it's no less true today than it was when the Lord spoke it to his disciples. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. One more idol, okay? One more idol. The idol, and this is a little different one, but I want you to stick with me on this one. The idol of our works. Okay? The idol of our works. You know, a great many Christians today worship their work. Let me say that again. A great many Christians today worship their work or their careers. 
You know, many of the problems that befall ministries today, whether they be financial pressures or personal problems and family crises, are not necessarily, young people, the result of satanic attack. Did you hear that? I preached on this last spring. Satan gets an awful lot more credit than he really deserves. Let me illustrate that. Much of what happens stems from our own sinfulness. Since stems from our own willfulness. Barbara Tuckman, a great historian, said this about mistakes in history. Problems can arise from our sheer wooden-headedness. It consists of assessing a situation in terms of preconceived fixed notions while ignoring or rejecting contrary signs. It is acting according to wish while not allowing oneself to be confused with facts. It is choosing to appear strong rather than to be right. It is being consistent in the pursuit of bad judgment and maintaining a fixed idea at all cost. Now, young people, listen. You don't understand this, but I do. The temptation in a career is to put the, listen to this, the work of God above God. Did you hear what I said? To put the work of God above God, even resorting, as the Roberts did, to ungodly means to achieve their ends. The biggest threat to the church today is not Satan, but our own mortality, which breeds corruption. As I said a moment ago, much of our, many of our problems stem from our own stupidity and willful disobedience. Greedy decisions concerning indulgence, poor planning. You know, Pogo was really right. We have met the enemy and he is who? He is us. Most of the time. Now, Dr. MacArthur gave us the remedy for idolatry on Wednesday. Remember what he said? He said, recognize the flesh for what it is. We are in a continual battle with this corruption. First of all, he said, be a living sacrifice. Don't let the flesh crawl off the altar of your life in any area. Secondly, he said, give your soul to God. And thirdly, he said, don't conform to the thought patterns of this age. That's what we've been talking about. Which scream out for self, for wealth, power, and career. That's what we need to do. But let me just close this morning with one motive, if I might. And there are a number of motives I could use to get you to zero in on this. But let me give you one motive. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Now, young people, stick with me on this. I'm speaking from experience here, and it's going to really be hard for you to grasp this. Because you, you believe you have your lives and your careers and everything all in front of you. And you're here to train, and that's true. But let me try to bring a perspective to that this morning, if I might, with this one motive. Look at Philippians chapter 3, and you follow as I read, beginning in verse 17. Philippians 3, verse 17. Join with others in following my example, Paul says, brothers, and take note of those who are living according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross. Now, I want you to get this next verse. Because it is, an, it, is, it is an exact statement as to where our culture is today. Okay? Things haven't changed. They're, he's talking about unbelievers here. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their... In the King James it says what? Their God is their belly. 
What are, they, what are they concerned about all the time? What are they concerned about? Themselves, their own mortality, making it here and now. And their glory is in their shame. Once again, I believe that refers to their mortality as well. Now watch this. Their mind is on what? Earthly things. Their mind is on earthly things. Now here comes the key for us. But our citizenship is where? It's where? It's in heaven. It's in heaven. Now why, now why could Paul live like that? Get this next verse. And we, and I love this next word in the NIV. We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly, mortal, corrupted, fleshly bodies so that they will be like what? His glorious body. Now, do you understand what Paul is saying there? Paul, in carrying out all the work of the gospel, he was still eagerly awaiting the day when he would participate in the rapture resurrection. That was his motivation. That kept him from stumbling in all these areas that he talks about up in verse 17. Let me ask you this question. How much idolatry would be in our lives? I'm asking this of myself as well. If we are eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. Beloved, listen. I believe the reason for so much materialism in the church today and so much careerism and so much of a thirsting for power and, and a concentration on the self is because we have lost the vision of what it means to be raptured and resurrected physically. How much easier would it be to keep the flesh on the altar if we are living in this reality? You see, young people, glorifying self, glorifying wealth, glorifying power, and glorifying our careers all stem from the proposition that practically, that practically speaking, those things are ends in themselves. And you know, unfortunately, many Christians have become just like Lot and his wife. They have sunk their roots deeply into this perverse culture. Many of you today are seeking goals that all they will do will drive you more deeply into this perverse generation and culture. When in reality, we are called to be salt in life. Young people, did you ever think of yourself as being a stranger and a pilgrim? What does that mean? Paul says his citizenship is in heaven. Well, you can come back to me and you can say, well, yeah, it's easy for you to desire the rapture. You know, you're married. You've raised a family. You have a career. You're on the downward side. I can identify with that. When I was your age, I used to pray that the rapture wouldn't take place until I was married and could have a career and do all these things. Okay? Now, 22 years later, with four children, two of them being teenagers, my prayer is now, come quickly, Lord Jesus. <laughs> That's true. It's a different perspective. 
Seriously, how do you as students simultaneously prepare for a career and desire the rapture? That is to be delivered from your fleshly mortality. How do you do this with all your heart? Now listen to this. The spiritual gifts you possess right now form the foundation for life in our resurrected state, as was true of the Thyatirans in Revelation 2, verse 26. Let me illustrate it. Your daily goal is the establishment through the power of the Holy Spirit of a godly life history, which becomes the basis for your service to Christ in the Millennial Kingdom. You see, you cannot separate your career now from what you're going to be in the resurrection state. The issue is that we've got to have the faith that God is going to take the gifts that you have right now, use them for His glory here, and also use them for His glory in the resurrected state. That's a wonderful thing to get a hold of. That means you don't have to divide all these things up. Young people, listen to me. I think one of the greatest problems that the church has today is that we are into empire building, we're into building monuments, we're into doing all these things, and the reason is we do not take seriously what the Apostle Paul has said here in Philippians chapter 3, that he waits eagerly. He awaits eagerly, and no man was more involved in ministry than the Apostle Paul, yet he waited eagerly for that time when he would be able to put the flesh aside. Well, young people, my prayer for you this morning is that you will be able to reach the point in your life when you can say with the Apostle John in Revelation 22.20, Come, Lord Jesus, knowing full well that it will not be the end of your career, but the beginning of its glorious fulfillment. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity just to share some really difficult words this morning.